Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Tonight is the first night of Hanukkah, and later in the show we'll hear from Rabbi Amy Walk from Temple Bethel about her congregation and how they're looking at the Festival of Lights in light of recent global events. We'll hear about the economic impact of the arts when we speak with Randy Cohen about a new report, Arts and Economic Prosperity, which shows the collective power of the creative economy in Springfield and beyond. And we'll hear about the spiritual impact of the arts when we talk with Northampton-based Rastafari Rebel, who are bringing their Love for Humanity concert to the Northampton Center for the Arts this Sunday. But first... Hey, how are you? Couldn't you? Oh, everything's beautiful. What can you say? You maintain such a positive attitude with such a strange going on in your profession. Everything is so weird and so crazy and so polarized that it's, uh, you know, I'm glad I drink. Let me just say... (laughs) That's, that's one of the benefits of, being, of drinking. It's so. a storied tradition in the House of Representatives and in all of U.S. government, really. Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Congressman Jim McGovern, a segment we like to call McGoverning with McGovern. You can always send your questions for the Congressman to thefab413 at nepm.org. And it has been an historic week once again in your chamber of Congress, where the former Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who was the first to be removed as Speaker, has said he's quitting at the end of the month after saying he was not going to quit. And then after the chamber expelled Republican George Santos, there have only been 21 members of Congress ever expelled, 15 from the Senate, six from the House. Most of the ones from the House were Democrats during the Civil War era who were expelled for supporting the Confederacy, and this is the first Republican. Uh, We got a question from Jim in Northampton who wants to know, does the announcement of McCarthy leaving and the expulsion of Santos change the math in the House in any way that could be effective for the Democrats? Well, I mean, it, it will narrow the Republican majority, probably bring it down to two. And so things will be a lot tighter. And, you know, we have an opportunity to stop a lot more bad stuff and try to maybe get a couple of so-called moderates to join with us on sensible legislation. So, yeah, it is to our advantage, but it is not the same as being in the majority. And again, my hope is that we will be in the majority uh, in, a, in a little less than a year um, because there's so much at stake. And I said last night on the House floor, this place under Republican leadership is becoming a place where trivial issues get debated passionately and important ones not at all. They bring legislation to the floor that I guess appeals to the right wing MAGA base, but has no chance of going anywhere. It's just ridiculous. And they spend no time trying to do the work that has to be done. I mean, we, we they haven't convened a meeting on appropriations to fund the government so we don't have a shutdown in January and February since we had that vote to kick the candy on the road a few several weeks ago. So we need grown-ups here, uh, you know, not just Democrats, but if Republicans are going to come here, we need grown-up Republicans too. And unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any on that side. Well, were there any grown-up Republicans on the stage last night during the debate, the Republican debate for president? The Huffington Post said Chris Christie's scorched earth called Trump a dictator and uh, layered into Ramaswamy. Uh, I caught some of the highlights of that. Chris Christie uh, was harsh towards Trump. Uh, Trump himself declared himself that he was going to become a dictator on day one if reelected. Did you catch anything from that debate last night? And was there any glimmers of hope for you and maybe your caucus, the Democrats, to uh, work with one of these folks on stage if Joe Biden should happen to lose to one of them uh, in November of 24? Well, I appreciated Chris Christie's candor last night. I wish that was on display when he was basically serving a Donald Trump when Trump was president. 
but nonetheless, he is basically speaking the truth. It's shocking the others, you know, continue to be apologists for Trump and can't bring themselves to say anything mildly negative about Trump, his indictments or his behavior or his, his very dangerous, dangerous rhetoric. But the fact of the matter is Donald Trump is ahead by 20, 30, 40 points in most states. And in all likelihood, because voting begins in a matter of weeks in Iowa, he is going to win the Iowa caucus and he will win other primaries and he will be the Republican nominee for president. And I am very concerned because I thought the Republican Party would have reassessed after the Trump presidency and after January 6th, kind of where their priorities are and where their allegiances would be, but they haven't. And I will tell you, you know, very clearly that what's on the ballot next November is our democracy. You know, and I've said this to people at various forums who, you know, are not happy with Joe Biden for this or that or whatever. The choice is could it be Joe Biden or Donald Trump, unless something unexpected happens. But that's your choice. And it's really a choice between whether or not we have a democracy in this country or whether we basically say the hell with it. If Trump were to win, my Angelou used to have that great line, when somebody shows you who they are, you know, believe them the first time. I mean, he has told us what he wants to do. And he has told us who his heroes are. Viktor Orban of of Hungary is his hero. I mean, the dictator, uh, a guy who cracks down on freedom of the press, who goes after political enemies and jails them. So we know what to expect. And so we have to we have to understand uh, what what can happen, and we have to go into this election with our wide, eyes wide open. Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, came to the Bay State this week as part of a campaign fundraiser. He was met by the governor, as well as the mayor of Boston, and did say that he would not be running again if not for Trump. First, were you part of his entourage here when he was uh, campaigning in the Bay State? And second, is is that a good rhetoric to roll out with that you you know don't want to be president, but you're only doing it to stop this one guy? Well, look, at I uh, I was not. We we had votes uh, that night. I I would have liked to have seen James Taylor, who I I like a lot, and who by the way, um, uh, you know, was uh, an early supporter of my mentor and hero, George McGovern, when he ran for president in 1972 against Richard Nixon. Um, yeah, no, look, I mean, I, I, I think what he was trying to say is that the stakes are high here. You know, being president isn't easy. Uh, that what, what, is, what is compelling him to, to, you know, to stand up and to take on Trump is the fact that this is a guy who brags about being a dictator. I mean, so we can argue over whether that's the right approach or not or whatever. But I mean, I think the point he's trying to make is, you know, I mean, this is different than other elections. When Trump first became president, we turned against Hillary. I remember, we, you know, I would tell people that, hey, you know, this guy is not just a, a, a Republican running for president. This guy is somebody who's very, very dangerous that who could take away your rights. And people say, oh, no, no, no. You know, he became president and he did what other conservative presidents can never do. And that was got Roe versus Wade over, overturned, literally took away rights that women had in this country for many, many, many years. They just he took it away. And so we, we've seen what he's about. Uh, but he's even more dangerous now. I mean, he's more angry. He's more bitter. He's more vengeful. It is scarier than ever. I, I don't ever recall a presidential election where one of the major candidates was as deranged, as unhinged as Donald Trump. I've seen democracies unravel all around the world. And it begins with a demagogue 
and in this case, a very dangerous demagogue. And this is a moment we all have to stand up and push back. We're speaking with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Congressman Jim McGovern, McGoverning with McGovern. We'll put electoral politics aside for the moment. There has been some movement, not necessarily legislative, but uh, I think glimmers of hope for people who want to make sure that our neighbors have enough to eat. A USDA rule that has made permanent free school meals across the country more likely, uh, a la Massachusetts has done this year. And as right. California has done previously, it's an idea that was taken out of the White House Conference for Hunger, Nutrition, and Health, which you uh, right. urged the Biden administration to convene last year. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this new USDA rule, how it differentiates itself from law, and why this is a glimmer of hope for making sure our students across the nation will have enough to eat in schools. Well, because it makes more schools eligible for free school meals. It's not a substitute for what Massachusetts did. And I give great credit to our state legislature and the governor for doing this, which was universal free meals for everybody. But because of what the income of certain areas are in terms of what people earn, there are some schools that have automatically been given full reimbursement for meals for everybody in that school. What they've done is they've kind of expanded who can be eligible. So that means more schools will be able to offer free meals to all the kids that go there. But we still need to be pushing for what Massachusetts did. This is a big deal because a lot of kids go to school hungry. A lot of kids don't have the money to pay for breakfast or lunch at school. As we saw in Massachusetts, that was the case. A lot of families became delinquent in their payments and then kids were given alternative meals and stigmas developed and on and on and on. But we all know this, that you can't learn on an empty stomach. If you're hungry, you know, you can't perform to your potential in school. This is a win-win-win. And again, I appreciate the fact that USDA understands the importance of making sure that kids don't go hungry. Uh, I also appreciate that they understand the linkage between, you know, hunger and kids' inability to learn. So this is a good development. We need to do more. But Again, it came as a result of the White House conference that uh, you were at um, a little over a year ago. And um, so we had some progress, so we should celebrate that. And I was at a conference yesterday uh, with USDA officials, and you know, it really seems that the Secretary of Agriculture has gotten religion on this issue. I mean, this is, I remember when he was Secretary of Agriculture under Obama, Secretary Vilsack. He was a great Secretary of Agriculture. But it was always hard to kind of get him to focus on on these issues of food security. Uh, not that he didn't care, it's just that there were other issues. But I, he, he just seems to have really embraced this issue and he's running with it. And, um, and, I, and I'm really grateful for that. I think a lot of people are going to benefit from his leadership. Speaking with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, another major issue that's affecting Massachusetts is the stress on the emergency shelter system. I know much of the congressional delegation is trying to put pressure on the Biden administration to support this emergency funding more than they have been. Massachusetts received about $2 million for the program this year, but the well, governor said that the state's spending about $45 million a month on shelter services. I know the president's requested another $1.4 billion for the federal programs. Any traction in Congress that that could help offer relief to the shelter system in Massachusetts? And where do you yeah, stand we, on this issue? If, yeah, if we can get it passed, providing more assistance to states to be able to deal with um, the migrant situation, I think is, is important. I also think that we should also put some more money into an emergency supplemental to help process, uh, you know, uh, asylum cases. I mean, the backlog is so incredible. So a lot of the people who are in these shelters 
you know, don't have the ability to work. So they have to live in shelters and they, many of them will, will get asylum because they have a well-founded fear of persecution. But, you know, the backlog is such that it's months and months and months and months and about years before they get adjudicated. Let's figure out a way to, you know, to eliminate that back, backlog and move this stuff more quickly. You guarantee that you help people who have a well-founded fear of persecution and those who are trying to rig the system. Well, then they're told, you don't get it. You know, you have to go back. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not just about shelter. I mean, that's, a, that's kind of a short-term thing and we need to address it. But there's this backlog that is so incredible that, um, you know, we will be dealing with this shelter issue forever if we don't somehow address that. And so let's adjudicate these cases um, in a more efficient and rapid manner. People want to work. I'm at the shelters I visited, people want to work. And we need workers. We need workers in the hospitality industry, in the healthcare industry. I visited a nursing home in, in Worcester was a couple of weeks ago. And the, what's the biggest problem? We can't find people to work here. Mm-hmm. So there is a need for workers. We have these, these people here. Many of them qual- will qualify for asylum. Their status will be able to be regularized. Let's just do it. Let's get this done so they can be productive members of our community. As we know, there's a bunch of uh, Haitian migrants who are living in the days in off of the Rotary in Greenfield, and so many of them eager to work if only they were uh, allowed the opportunity. Uh, and uh, we have a, a, a group of, of, of Haitian migrants who are living in Sutton, which is right outside of Worcester. Same thing. I mean, when I go visit them, that is what that is the one thing I hear. We would like to work. We would like to work. Um, and by the way, we need workers. U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's own Congressman Jim McGovern joins us every week mcgoverning with mcgovern send your questions for the congressman at thefab413 at nepm.org and thanks as always all the best be safe coming up we'll hear about the health of arts communities when we break down a new report arts and economic prosperity with randy cohen vp of research at americans for the arts but up next rabbi amy walk giving us her perspective in anticipation of the first night of hanukkah tonight you're listening to the fabulous 413 on 88.5 nepm The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Tonight is the first night of Hanukkah, and joining us from Temple Beth El in Springfield is Rabbi Amy Walk. Rabbi Amy moved to Springfield in 2008 from Kansas City to serve as rabbi of the newly merged Temple Beth El and Congregation B'nai Jacob. Temple Beth El's mission states that their congregation is devoted to seeking God, doing mitzvah, studying Torah, and creating community. Temple Beth El is the largest conservative synagogue in Western Massachusetts, founded in 1913 and affiliated with the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism and the Synagogue. Council of Massachusetts. Hag Sameach, Rabbi Amy, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Good to be here. Well, it's Hanukkah tonight, and we were talking about being the largest conservative synagogue in Western Mass, but if you're not overly familiar with the uh, different strata of Judaism, conservatism may not mean exactly what some people think it means. Talk to us a little bit about what a conservative congregation like yours is. A conservative congregation like mine finds itself right in the middle. Hmm. On the one hand, we are comfortable changing tradition and recognize that the Judaism that brought us into the 19th or 20th century might not be the Judaism that we need to look towards the future. So, for example, 
this isn't going to be a surprise. Conservative Judaism is completely egalitarian. Uh-huh. As- that was a change. I was in the first yes. class of women to apply to rabbinical school. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, we want to conserve the tradition, but we also understand that sometimes the tradition needs to be changed. And it is that grappling of tradition and change that is the definition of conservative Judaism. Tell us about that first cohort of rabbis that you were part of, and when was that? So I applied to rabbinical school in the fall of 1983. Mm -hmm. I was accepted in March, and I began the the following September. I actually began in Jerusalem and then went to Los Angeles. And in those days, I was the only woman in my class. For much of my rabbinic career, I was the woman with four or five or six men, and um, it was just a different time for sure. How have you felt about the changing landscape of Rabbi Dom? I'm not entirely sure how to... How the to, rabbinate? The rabbinate. You were one of the first women, one of the few women in your class, and I feel like that has grown over the years. Perhaps totally. not as much as people might have expected, but it's definitely oh, no. grown. Oh, no, it's grown a lot. So your feelings about that landscape, at least like in terms of, of gender of the rabbinate, changing over these years? This is going to surprise you, but I don't want the rabbinate to become a woman's profession. Hmm. (laughs) And I don't want it to become a woman's profession, quite frankly, because a lot of times when something becomes a woman's profession, it is not as valued. So think about teaching, think about nursing. That's not to say that I don't value teachers or nurses. Let's be clear. I do. But I know that in the world that we live in, sometimes a woman's profession actually is not a good thing. That said, I think women have made a tremendous contribution to the rabbinate, and I'm very proud of my colleagues. But I wanted to say, for me, my decision to go into the rabbinate was an expression of my deep love of the Jewish people, of Jewish text, and a deep desire to bring tradition to people and to serve God. The mission statement for the congregation is a reflection of my own practice. And even when I applied to rabbinical school, I said at the committee that it was not an expression of my being a feminist. In fact, I remember when I made that statement, I said, I'm not a feminist, which is really not true. Of course, I was a feminist in 1984. I just, I didn't, I went to Barnard College. Of course, I was a feminist. But (laughs) my deciding to be a rabbi was an expression of my love for the Jewish people, not an expression of my being a feminist. Mm. We're speaking with Rabbi Amy Walk, who is the rabbi for Temple Beth El in Springfield. Tonight is the first night of Hanukkah. And I think uh, in contemporary culture, people often think, oh, Hanukkah is just like Jewish Christmas or Hanukkah. It's the most holy of holy holidays for the Jewish people. (laughs) Tell us your take on Hanukkah as it stands in the U.S. and even Hanukkah as it stands as a, a holiday here in our corner of Western Massachusetts. So Hanukkah is, I mean, I think a really important holiday. It's not a minor holiday, but it's not a biblical holiday. Mm -hmm. So the observance of it looks different than the Passover, for example. So what I want to say about Hanukkah is I think it's an important lesson about what does it mean to be a minority in a majority culture, Mm -hmm. right? The story of Hanukkah goes back to a desire for, um, the question was, are Jews going to embrace Hellenism? Some mm. wanted to embrace Hellenism, others did not, right? And that, that, that became a struggle within the community. How do we hold on to who we are? Do we hold on to who we are by embracing Hellenism or do we hold on to who we are by rejecting Hellenism? Take that forward into the 21st century 
how do we hold on to Jewish tradition now? Do we hold on to it by embracing the secular world around us? I say secular, or do we hold on to it by embracing the majority culture? And then I'm going to just take it a step further because it's after October 7th. Mm -hmm. And so I have to say, it's really hard to be a minority in this particular moment. And so the teachings of Hanukkah actually ring really true to say, what does it mean to hold on to our love of Israel, our commitment to Israel, at a time when the world may not share that love or that commitment or understand what Israel is about. And so the lessons of Hanukkah are as apt today as then, although that clearly the particulars are very different. Tell us a little bit about how your congregation is viewing Hanukkah in light of everything that's gone on between Israel and Hamas after October 7th. I mean, the Hanukkah story is essentially one about the survival of Jewish people. Is there a different tone, a different sentiment? And, and what's your congregation, how, how are they wrestling with these things in Springfield? So the way I'm trying to frame the conversations about Hanukkah right now is I'm trying to frame the conversation about light in the darkness. There's a teaching in the book of Proverbs that says that the soul of a person is the candle of God, and that actually we each bring light into the world. So one of the things that I want to do for the congregation is highlight stories of heroism in Israel since October 7th, because I want to remind people that not only do we need to mourn what happened, but we also need to celebrate the strong, the courageous people who made a difference, who who stepped forward and said, um, they were going to defend their community, their people. So we're going to be highlighting and celebrating a person each night. And the other piece I want to do is remind all of us that we can bring light in darkness. We can have conversations with people and try and understand what are they understanding about this horrible war and what is our understanding and how can we shed light on their understanding and how can they shed light on our understanding. And so for my mind, like a big part of this holiday is about remembering that one candle brings an enormous amount of light into the world. On Sunday, we'll be, we'll be, we have a scholar coming to talk to us about how the Jewish world has changed since October 7th and what are we going to do about it. But individually, what I hope my congregants will do is really think about the light that others bring and then ask themselves, what light can I bring? Are there other events that you've planned beyond highlighting folks that are encouraging that sort of enlightenment? To be honest with you, Hanukkah is mostly a home celebration. Mm. We already had a Hanukkah dinner last last week. Actually, we did it early because we know a lot of people want to be with their families on Hanukkah. You know, we have a school program. We have our services. We, we light candles together every night. The Jewish community as a whole, I know there's a candle lighting at the courthouse tonight. There are other pieces. I happen not to have organized those particular pieces, but there definitely are. There's something in West Springfield. There's something at the Longmeadow shops. Like People like to try and make a, a public statement about that. And the, our Jewish community has the first light at the JCC tonight also at about 5 o'clock, I think it is. We're speaking with Rabbi Amy Walk, who is the rabbi for Temple Bethel in Springfield. You said that Hanukkah is uh, mostly a home holiday. It is not considered one of the high holy days like Passover, like Yom Kippur. Um, what are some of your favorite home traditions uh, that you have done with you, your family celebrating Hanukkah through your life? So in our family, we each of my children has their own Hanukkah menorah or Hanukkah, as it's called. 
And we have a special spot in the house where when my children were younger, we would light the candles together. And as they got older, I might light them three different times because one was available at seven and another at eight and another at 10, right? Like that's just, that's what we moms do. Um, and now that my children are, are not living at home, we FaceTime each other and we light together. I want to say I'm really proud. We've never been a family that's focused on gifts. Mm-hmm. Like it's just never been the thing that we do. We always try and have a night where we're together, where it's not multiple candle lightings, but a candle lighting. <laughs> we light the Minerva. That's our big thing. We we definitely have a few little decorations around the house. And I, the Hanukkah Minerva that I use was actually my grandparents by Bubby and Zadie's. And so I um, I love using it because I love knowing that it belonged to my grandparents oh so many years ago. That's great. Before we let you go, I mean, it has been a, a, a fraught time with the rise of anti-Semitism, with the war that's going on. There are many in the Jewish community that whose heart breaks as much for what happened uh, in Israel on October 7th at the hands of Hamas as are breaking for what the Israeli government is doing in Gaza right now. Your congregation in Springfield, tell us some of the feedback and the feelings that our neighbors uh, who are Jewish, who live in Western Mass, are experiencing right now. So I want to say, I think that my congregation by and large, and I obviously I don't speak for everybody, mm-hmm. um, I think my congregation by and large stands with Israel and understands that Israel needs to defend itself from an evil and understands that a country needs to, it needs to make sure that its citizens will never be violated or attacked in the way that Israelis were violated and attacked on October 7th. I also think that my congregants are heartsick for the innocent Palestinians who are in the the line of fire, where I think my congregation will probably differ than many is, is it, and we hold Hamas responsible. When you put the Hamas headquarters in the basement of a hospital, you're basically saying those, the patients in the hospital become human shields. And so we mourn the death of innocence, whether it, it is in Gaza or in Israel, but we understand Israel needs to do what it has to do to defend itself. And I would say, I think most of my congregation will turn and say, when the United States was fighting World War II, they actually understood that there was an evil that had to be eradicated. And they held the Nazis responsible for the loss of innocent life, even if it was an American weapon that caused that death. And I think that's something similar here, but I wanna really name and hold on to this idea that doesn't mean that we're not mourning that death, right? There's a, an important tradition that goes all the back, way back to when the Israelites were leaving Egypt and the Egyptians drowned in the sea. And there's this teaching that says, and the, Isra- the Israelites started to celebrate the death of the Egyptians and God scolded them and said, what the heck? Hmm. How could you possibly be celebrating I created them too. The story of the Bible begins with the creation of Adam and Eve, not Abraham. Don't you dare celebrate the death of another human being. And Mm. so I really want to say, I think my congregation is working really hard to hold on to that position of mourning the death of innocent civilians, even as they understand that Israel has to defend itself. Like Israel can't just respond to October 7th by saying, oh, that's too bad. Rabbi Amy Walk, thank you so much for sharing your perspective on what's going on globally and at the same time sharing your perspective on what's going on locally with Hanukkah, with your congregation, Temple Bethel in Springfield. Thank you so much. My pleasure. But I need one candle for the
<laughs> Tomorrow on the show, a slightly different take on Hanukkah. We'll talk with members of Western Mass Jewish Voice for Peace, who are hosting a 25-mile march for Palestine happening this Sunday from Northampton to Springfield. Up next, a preview of Local Heroes, Rebel's Love for Humanity concert coming to Northampton Center for the Arts this Sunday. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. Love for Humanity is a live concert and interactive spoken word teach-in focused on the power of unity, consciousness, and collaborative intention aiming to transcend barriers of judgment and ignorance. The musicians will share stories of immigration challenges, being a first-generation American, the complexity of African, African-American, and mixed-race identity, and belonging, power of healing through trauma, and how personal and collective intention setting has the potential to heal. Love for Humanity will happen this Sunday, December 10th, 3 to 6, at the Northampton Center for the Arts at 33 Holly in Northampton. Joining us is Manu Africa, a vocalist, multi-instrumentalist, and founding member of Rebel, formerly known as Black Rebels. He started the band in Senegal, West Africa, where he was born and raised, and from where he continued his musical and activist course after coming to the U.S. in 1994. After arriving to the East Coast of the U.S., he began his musical collaboration with Kalpana Devi, who also joins us. Their first performance together in the U.S came just weeks after they met. Together they've toured Rebel all across America and West Africa. The two have been married for 29 years and they have six children who they call their soul seeds. One of those soul seeds also joins us. Naya Kete is a singer-songwriter and musician and co-founder of Say Real, an urban <laughs> reggae group attempting to spearhead a social evolution of mainstream pop culture. Naya was born in Northampton but currently lives in Southern California where she built a street following singing in Santa Monica. In early 2012 she was a contestant on the second season of the NBC television show The Voice as a member of Team Blake, making it into the top 24. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Woohoo! <laughs> what I love you about... You sound so cool. You do sound <laughs> so cool. All of it's true. The big family get-together of music and, you know, your family, for the people who know music in Western Massachusetts, we're no strangers to Black Rebels or Rebel mm-hmm. uh, or Say Real or Naya Kete have been playing literally for decades around here. And we're in the, we're in the holiday season where I think people are, have a heightened awareness to the impact of the spiritual. They're more open to these concepts. And, you know, we're going to talk later in the show today about the economic impacts of the arts in Springfield and beyond. But what you have done as a family, both as Rebel and you and your own work, Naya, is you have incorporated more of the spiritual elements of music into healing, working through trauma, almost like as a life coach. And I'm assuming this all comes from the Rasta tradition. So Manu, will you tell us a little bit about you're bringing that Rasta tradition to Western Mass. Uh, greetings, everyone. Thank you for having us. Sure. Well, the Rasta movement is a gift from His Majesty Haile Selassie I, and what Rasta did to me is just open my third eye so I can see the world better with uh, love, justice, and compassion, and I can see all nations as a one nation, all people as a one people, as human people, and uh, teach me about revolution using music in the right way. Why I decide to do music is to bring the message of love, justice, compassion, freedom, and equality to humanity. That's what I brought to America and meet my beautiful empress and 
give it to all my children every question i speak a lot all over the place i'm always talking to my children sometimes it's fun sometimes it's tough but keep bringing the message and humbling myself more so i can let other vibration come to me in the positive way that's what I love about Rastafari is that, you know, it, tonight is the first night of Hanukkah. There are all sorts of spiritual traditions, but how interwoven the music is specifically. Tell us what, what's going to happen with Rebel and this conference that's happening Sunday in Northampton. Hey, thanks, Monty. Well, our, our intention was to create an event that was more than an event itself, but an experience for all of us in attendance to tap into the power of what happens when we take back our focus. Manu and I and Naya, we're a family in music and we've been performing on stages for decades. And, you know, the, the experience of being embodied in that flow when we're in rehearsal, when we're creating, artists understand what flow is, athletes understand what flow is. That experience of flow you know, I'm thinking back to performances that we've we've done where we're on stages in festival venues and there's thousands of people. That experience of flow and harnessing our focus as a weapon of mass ascension and mass creation is not small. And it's not an idea. It's a reality. And that's where music as medicine is really, really powerful. Our focus gets scattered all day long, but music is a guide and music it can, is a mantra and music is a force. We're speaking with Kalpana Devi and Manu Africa, who are from the group Rebel, who will be hosting the Love for Humanity live concert and spoken word teaching this Sunday, 33 Holly, the Northampton Center for the Arts. We were talking to your mom Naya Kete, about how the power of music and changing, hopefully, society, but also individual lives. And that's kind of been your focus as well, leaving Northampton, but now on the West Coast. You have like a coaching through music practice. Yeah. During the pandemic, I founded a program called Song Healing Trauma. We all lost our livelihoods overnight, so we had to figure out kind of how to pivot. And um I had an opportunity to develop this program, Song Healing Trauma, in collaboration with the Center for Resilience based out of Holyoke. It ended up evolving into a coaching and healing program through music. You know, I've got to say, it's really growing up in a household with family members like the two that you just heard from that created a foundation of desire to use music, creativity, and artistry as a means to tangibly not, you know, I love what my mom said, it's not as an idea, it's a reality to tangibly change the fabric of our mindset, of our trauma, of the way it is that we interact with the world so that we're not in a state of hypervigilance, but can actually respond to our environment versus react to it. And so I love that I can even still from California support events like Rebel's Love for Humanity just by virtue of continuing to be a demonstration of that in the work that I do. So the ripple effect is very real. This event, Love for Humanity, is not just music, though. It's music and stories. Do you feel when you're out performing that your 
stories of your experiences connect with audiences in a different way than your music does? Absolutely. The other thing that I'm aware of and that that Manu and I are too, and Naya too, is that when we go out on stages as musicians, we're actually in a conversation with humanity. The music causes the nervous system to do something differently and ecstatically and wonderfully. Um, it's why well, music is a central part in cultures worldwide. The conversation, though, has a different impact. I like something that Brene Brown, a really influential writer and well-being guru, she said that her definition of courage is to tell the story of who you are with your whole heart. Playing the music and then inserting a story that invites the listener into my humanity and establishing that rapport. Talk about melting, you know, dissolving barriers. And I have as many people, and especially for me, women, coming up to me after a concert to say, oh, your voice and oh, your music and oh, when you told that story. You know, it, it carries equal weight. That is Kalpana Devi, who, along with Manu Africa, will be performing as Rebel at the Love for Humanity concert, which is happening this Sunday, December 10th at 33 Holly, the Northampton Center for the Arts. And a huge thank you to their soul seed, Naya Kete, who joins us from the West Coast. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Monty. Thank you. If that was the spiritual take on the arts, what's the economic take? Up next, we'll hear a new report on the economic impact of the arts in Springfield when we talk with Randy Cohen, VP of Research for Americans for the Arts. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413, Arts and Economic Prosperity 6, AEP6, the sixth economic impact study of the nonprofit arts and culture industry in the U.S. It's conducted every five years to gauge the economic impact of spending by nonprofit arts and culture organizations and the event-related spending by their audiences. We're joined by the author of the report, Randy Cohen, Vice, Vice President of Research for Americans for the Arts, the National Advocacy Organization for the Arts, where he has been empowering arts advocates since 1991. He was a recent nominee for the Sidney Yates Advocacy Award for Outstanding Advocacy on behalf of Programming Arts in America. And you've been on a whirlwind tour, Randy, where you're uh, sharing this report with all sorts of different cities. And today in Springfield, you'll be sharing it as well a little bit uh, later this afternoon at the Community Music School of Springfield. Tell us, let's start here. Let's start in Springfield. And it seems like there is a trend when I've looked at the other reports and the big overarching report that arts is something that is a worthwhile investment for a community. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here and, uh, and great to be in a fabulous art city like Springfield. <laughs> yeah. And this is a different way to talk about the arts, right? As as a business, as an industry. But the fact is, um, that's exactly what arts organizations are. And um, this is a national study looking at the economic impact of the arts and how the industry supports jobs and generates government revenue. And I can tell you right here in Springfield, we found it's an $82.4 million industry that supports 1,483 jobs. So our He's not, not even looking at a sheet. He has memorized those numbers. Yeah. For this city, 
alone. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> and I've only, already forgotten the numbers, and it's the city that I'm in every day. Seventy-two more to memorize. <laughs> Whoa! Uh, but uh, uh, you know, but the the amazing thing is what that tells us is the arts, not just food for the soul, but putting food on the table yeah. for a thousand four hundred eighty-three households right here in Springfield. How do those numbers compare to? pre-COVID years, because this report gets done every every five years, which means the last time that this happened, we weren't in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Well, yeah, the uh, last couple of years have been pretty rough on the arts. And, and I'll tell you, um, uh, uh, effectively, 99 percent. So just about everybody, you know, had to close their doors during the pandemic and some slowly reopened and then they had to reclose. And uh, nonprofit arts organizations lost jobs at five times the rate of all nonprofits. And even the Bureau of Economic Analysis called out the arts when they were doing analysis on the pandemic. And it's like, wow, hospitality, hotels, airlines, they really got hit. And then look out below. That's where <laughs> the arts were. Um, but, you know, they've really uh, made their way back. And these numbers I'm talking about are 2022. And I can tell you, um, you know, things are even better still in 2023. But uh, overall, you know, they're they're working their way back. Um, for some organizations, audiences are a little slower to return than expected. Um, folks haven't really walked away. They're just just slow coming back. Has any of your research led to why that is? I mean, I happen to be, full disclosure, I'm the president of the board, a volunteer of a nonprofit arts organization in Turner's Falls, and we've noticed that. People aren't coming back in the same way. The only thing that has really helped us make it through this period is an investment in the arts, either be through the philanthropy of generous individuals or the stimulus that we've seen come through either the state or the federal government. And, and how much of an impact did that have in keeping arts alive at all after the pandemic? Well, the uh, federal pandemic relief was truly a lifesaver uh, for the arts, just like so many other industries in our community. Um, because, you know, without when you're closed, there's no income coming in. <laughs> uh, and um, we lost some organizations. Uh, and I think there's still, you know, it's going to be a lot of hard work coming back uh, here the next couple of years. In terms of um, audiences and everything, some uh, like anything that has people 35 and under, they're back, you know, right. Concerts, arenas, um, you know, music clubs, they're pretty much all the way back. Uh, so different types of organizations um, and events, you know, some doing better than others, a little faster than others. Uh, but I tell you, the arts were exactly on the right side of what needed to be done post-pandemic. Because, right, there were like two huge things on our plates. How do we get people out of their homes and reconnect in their communities? And how do we help save all these businesses in our downtowns, you know, our restaurants, our, you know, lodging, our retail? And uh, the art, the arts, they get us out of our homes and into public spaces for shared experiences. You know, 72% of the American population, national studies say, um, Arts create uh, ex shared experiences for people regardless of age, race, ethnicity, faith. You know, nobody cares who you voted for or where you practice your faith. You know, we're all going to see this incredible music or play together. And then what we learned um, right here in Springfield is that every time somebody goes to an arts event, 
there's an event-related spend that happens as well, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, when you go, if you're going to go see a show or something, you don't, like, tiptoe out of the house, sneak in the theater, watch the show, and run home <laughs> before anybody notices you, right? <laughs> no, you probably may have had to pay for parking, and then you have dinner, see the show, and maybe go out for dessert or drinks after. If you got little ones at home, you double the cost of the evening on babysitting, yeah, right? right? Which I think is the real racket in all of this. <laughs> but, uh, Did that uh, factor into your reporting, Randy? We asked about (laughs) child care. So when you add up, we... and so working with the uh, uh, the Springfield Cultural Partnership um, did surveys across a whole range of arts events, 877 attendees. And we asked them, hey, we're glad you're here. Thanks for coming. How much did you spend related to this arts event on meals, on transportation, on retail? The typical attendee spends $31.85 per person per event, not including the cost of admission. Mm. And again, you know, just think of the last time you went out to see something, you know, that you, you make an event of it. Yeah. Right. So we also asked people an additional question, and that was, what's your zip code? Because we want to find out, do you live in the county? So uh, are you local um, or are you from outside the county, which would make you non-local? 21% of attendees came from outside the county, and they average $51.83 per person per event. And that's where you start to see the money spent on lodging and more on food and transportation. So we asked those folks yet one more question. Because we're just that annoying, right? <laughs> and and if you filled what is this out the a, SATs, I know it's not a proper survey if you're not actually surveying. Yeah, so. right. And if you know you're not bothering people just a little bit, but uh, um, and if you were a person out there, one of the 887 <laughs> or 77 respondents, thank you so much. Um, it was truly important. But we asked those non-local attendees, why are you here? You here on business? You here visiting friends and family? Eighty-six percent said. We came specifically for this arts event. Mm-hmm. So you could really see the pulling power that the arts have. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Randy Cohen, the Vice President of Research for Americans for the Arts. A new economic report, Arts and Economic Prosperity 6, is out. And it, we're talking specifically about the Springfield numbers. But how does Springfield compare with the national average um, in terms of the spending and the experiences that happen here? Well, um, you know, in terms of national averages, remember, there's 373 communities across the country. There's, you know, huge cities. There's Santa Fe. There's um, but compared to like communities, uh, it compares um, uh, it compares strongly, I think, in terms of spending. Um, One of the areas that I I really stood out to me um, in terms of much higher levels of a of appreciation and value is we also looked at some of the social impact uh, of the arts. And so we asked all those attendees that we surveyed questions about um, really what the arts mean to you. And all in the upper 80s and close to 90 percent of the uh, of the attendees at arts events here in Springfield said, you know, the arts, this event, the arts are a source of pride and community identity that's important to us. I'd feel a sense of loss if this arts or culture event were no longer available. And I think one of the real calls to action, 90 percent, nine out of 10, right? I mean, research, <laughs> nine out of 10, that's everybody, uh-huh. said, um, it's important to me that this be available, this cultural event be available for future generations. Mm-hmm. And what that tells me is that, you know, in this area, in this region, arts and culture, it's not like some single transactional experience 
but rather it's it's part of our history and our heritage and our culture and community identity. It's about where we've been as a community and, and where we're going. In just about two minutes that we have left, Randy Cohen, the Vice President of Research for Americans for the Arts, uh, was there a community where you researched this, where the economic impact of the arts did not have such a major effect? And if not, why, as somebody who's based in D.C. most of the time, don't we invest as a nation in this as a national priority for economic growth, if not for spiritual growth and overall just human happiness? Right. You know, the challenge with um, the arts is these benefits, none of them are intuitive. You know, when we think about arts organizations, we think, oh, there are these wonderful community amenities. And, you know, the holidays are coming. We're going to see some festivals and going to go see the Nutcracker. And in six months, it'll be summer and we'll do some outdoor concerts and everything. But the fact is, arts organizations are businesses. They employ a whole range of people, not just actors and curators, but also accountants and auditors and electricians and plumbers and security, people across the community. And, by the way, they generate government revenue right here, Springfield. $15.3 million in local, state, federal government revenue. A year? A year, Uh yeah. And so, you know, uh, people, an investment in the arts, it's just not disappearing down some black hole of goodness. It's giving back cultural and economic benefits to the community. They're not just nice, they're necessary. That's Mm. what we need to know and worthy of public investment. Uh, And I will say that in your conclusion at the end of um, both the national, I think the local one, one of your things that you say to like to help is the literally the first point that you say in helping these things to thrive is to attend these events. <laughs> yeah, what can I do to support the arts? You know what? It's contributions time at the end of the year for many people. Remember the arts when you make your contributions and go and attend and visit and participate in the arts and be an art maker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yep. great. Thank you so much. This is and a really pay fascinating pay for the art that you like. Pay for the art that you pay like. Pay for the art that you <laughs> like. Pay the artist. <laughs> Randy Cohen is the vice president president of Research for Americans for the Arts, the national advocacy organization who's created this AEP6, Arts and Economic Prosperity, sixth economic impact study chronicling Springfield and the nation as a whole. There's an event that's happening in Springfield tonight at the Community Music School starting at around five. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, we'll talk with members of the Western Mass Jewish Voice for Peace, who are hosting a 25-mile march for Palestinians happening this Sunday from Northampton to Springfield. And focal, focal, local, local folk legend Tracy Grammer for Live Music Friday before a duo of shows she'll perform over the next few days. And more makers markets, more better. We'll hear from the folks behind the Lowbrow Craft Fair, one of the longest running in, in Northampton. Plus a wine tasting at <laughs> State Street Deli Wines and Spirits with two big red wines and a guest tiebreaker and a promise of galas to come. Um, Go ahead. (laughs) Special thanks to Spouse Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Jay Giles Band, Bella Fleck, Peter, Paul, and Mary, 10CC, and the Glittering Prizes. Happy Hanukkah, y'all. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Kalee Smith. We'll see you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.